0: The exaltation as an event transforms and uh, transforms Christ in His identity as the Son, so that He becomes climactically Son. And uh, Mr. Yu was was just commenting um, in the uh, uh, in the break, uh, and really needs to be brought out here that it's, of course, in terms of His genuine humanity, His His uh, His. In, as that 's bound up with his messianic person that he experiences the begetting um, a, a, a change that is can be described as begetting so uh, well before, uh, rather than, than uh, labor or uh, restate the point further let 's move on, and um, this would now be a third point in developing our look at at um, Yes, I think that a doctrine of regeneration um, will want to make that connection. Um, yeah, I guess I, I'll just leave it there without trying to uh, uh, pursue further. I think you can see that, particularly in Paul, and, and that's it's it's something that I've tried to work out in uh, resurrection and redemption, uh, the connection between. Christ's resurrection and the believers, the already of the believers' resurrection, which I think um, connects to uh, regeneration. Now, uh, I do want us to look at Romans 1-4 in Paul further. Um, not to sacrifice... Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm totally in control here now. Yeah. Um, not not to, uh, to sacrifice the contours of Hebrews, the teaching of Hebrews, um, in, uh, to swallow him up in Paul, as it were, but uh, to see without uh, the essential um, harmony, I think we can see uh, between the two coming through here. And also, I think it helps us to understand what the writer's getting at. Now, it, uh, looking at Romans 1, 4... This is a verse that, uh, looking around, uh, probably not the majority of you, a uh, handful of you have uh, spent some time, uh, although it's been long past and you've probably forgotten, in Acts and Paul, considering. Uh, but especially we want to draw attention to the, uh, to the segment that begins in verse 3. Back in verse 1, uh, Paul has talked about himself, among other things, as set apart uh, to the gospel, uh, he says then, verse 2, that that gospel was promised um, in the Old Testament, in effect. And then he says that the gospel concerns his son. Take this prepositional phrase almost certainly back to the reference to uh, to set apart to the gospel, qualifying the gospel in verse 1. Uh, then the reference, you see, to God's son triggers uh, this material that we have in the rest of verse 3 and verse 4, a lot of debate uh, about uh, whether it represents some pre-Pauline material, a pre-Pauline um, confession, or or hymn fragment. Uh, but whatever it has it, internally, it's a, a very carefully uh, developed um, parallel, uh, contrasting parallel structure that I've tried to bring out here by these by the colors. Um, th- what we have are two con- two participial phrases that modify "we owe." He is the son, first of all, who is begotten of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And then further, verse 4, he is the son who is declared to be son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And uh, so you can see, uh, while there's a large contrast uh, between the participles, uh, begotten uh, and, and declared, Then, internally, there are further contrasts between of the seed of David, of the seed of David by the resurrection from the dead, ek, prepositional clauses, and then, of course, the contrast between kata sarka and kata pneuma hagyosunnes. Now, as I've tried to argue, and I don't want to get into the details here, even though, again, in in traditional dogmatic discussion, these verses are often appealed to as a proof text for the doctrine of the two natures, it's almost certainly not to be taken there. The contrast here is not uh, in terms of the two natures, but if you put it in in dogmatic parlance, the contrast is between the two states, between the state of humiliation, indicated in verse 3, the state of exaltation in verse 4. So that uh, the flesh, this is not human nature and divine nature, but according to um, the present order of things, uh, the the fallen world order of the Sarks, He was begotten into that, and he has been introduced by resurrection into the new eschatological order of the Spirit in the sense of the Holy Spirit. So the reference here particularly is not to the divine nature of Christ, but to uh, the Holy Spirit. Spirit not as... Christological, but as pneumatologically understood. So the contrast uh, is between what uh, is inaugurated by the birth or the incarnation and what is inaugurated by the resurrection, more broadly the exaltation. That's the essential contrast here. A redemptive historical rather than an ontological contrast would be another way of putting it. Now, all that uh, is to draw attention to your fact, uh, your attention to the fact that um, in terms of this parallelism, notice that the counterpart to genomenu, begotten or become of, um, made of the seed of David. See, by that way, that's where the, the the full human nature is already expressed there. But the contrast, notice the counterpart um, is not what we might expect. We would expect, uh, all things considered, a verb of resurrection here, like poieo, made alive, according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, or perhaps uh, something like ganao. Um, as we find... Uh, Applied from uh, the Hebrews, uh, Psalm 2 7 passage in Hebrews. Or maybe just simply um, the more simple za'o. But that isn't what we have here. We have instead this verb, aoristentos. Aorist, passive uh, participle from the verb aridzo, And then with the complementary predicate, because the idea is of, of declaring something, uh, the contrasting predicate is, or the connecting predicate is, huyothau in duname, son of God. Now I think uh, we can certainly say that this verb is, Seems deliberately chosen to bring out a significance of the resurrection that we would not otherwise see, that would not otherwise be apparent. And we need to think a little bit about that. Why, um, why the use of this uh, distinctive and unexpected—at least at a first glance—unexpected verb? Now, the verb oridzo has reference to effective declaration determination. Not determination as a psychological state of mind, but determination in the sense of of, uh, uh, deciding something to be the case. Or uh, another category we might use, uh, that of appointment. Uh, The verb brings us into the arena of appointment and effective declaration in that sense. And that is especially the case where, as we have here, God is the subject or the active agent of the verbal action in view, the declaration, the appointment. So, for instance, uh, just to give a couple of quick examples, in Acts 2.23, Jesus is handed over into the hands of wicked men to be crucified. That happens, though... As he is handed over by the determinate will and foreknowledge of God, and what we have there, a determinate or um, appointed appointed will uh, is a use of rizzo. Or again, uh, just more broadly, it's as you're probably it's compounded with pro. It's the pro orizzo that has to do with the predestination and the predetermination. Of God, as expressed in Romans 829 and thirty, and uh, Ephesians 1, five and 11. Uh, also, um, what we should be sure to appreciate is, is the juridical nuance that is involved. This is the kind of, of appointment that is binding, that is obligating. And you can see uh, good examples of that, just sticking within biblical um, usage, if you look at the Septuagint of Numbers chapter 30, uh, verse 3 and following, where you'll find there both the verb and the correlative noun, arismos harismos, um, having reference to, uh, In the context there, to a binding oath, uh, an obligation that is entered into by a vow. So, the thought you see, coming back to the Romans 1 4 passage, the thought is this the resurrection of Christ itself is an effective declaration. The resurrection, if you will, is a speech event act of resurrection says something, we're being told here. Specifically, uh, the resurrection means the appointment, the effective declaration, the constitutive appointment of the subject as son. Now you see, uh, here you have the same combination, uh, or, or the same tension or um, if whatever the right word is, the same imponderable raised by your question that we saw in, in Hebrews 1. The son, the one who in his identity as God's son, goes through all of this, uh, all of the humiliation that's described in verse 3, just in his identity as son, he is declared to be son of God in the resurrection. But you notice the further qualification we haven't talked about here. He is declared to be son of God in power. So that the thought here is this. The resurrection has significance for uh, the son in his messianic identity. In that messianic identity, it means his entrance into a new and exalted phase of sonship. By the way, you could get into a question here whether the induname should be taken adverbially or adjectivally. In other words, does the induname, uh, 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 taking it adverbially, does it qualify the verbal action? So that the emphasis then would be on the powerful character of uh, the declaration that takes place in the resurrection. Accenting the activity of resurrection in its power, or is alternatively the prepositional phrase to be taken adjectivally, and then that means connecting it with son of God, so that the thought then would be the thought here would be son of God in power or powerful son of God, and then the accent would be on power as a distinctive characteristic. Of exalted sonship. And, and I'm much inclined uh, to that, um, to, the, to the adjectival or last force, not only because of its positioning here, which would not be uh, decisive by itself, but uh, for, for the contextual um, considerations uh, immediate and broad that we would run into in Paul. Uh, here you see the in power stands in contrast to the weakness of the flesh after passing through all of the humiliation and weakness that the Incarnation involved for the Son, uh, he is now what he was not before by virtue of resurrection and its uh, determinative, a point of significance. He is now, since the resurrection, powerful Son of God, Son of God in power. Just look quickly at 2 Corinthians 13, 4 and you can see the um, a sort of a telescoped expression of, um, of, um, of what's fleshed out here. I guess that's not the best choice of words. What is... Um, um, 2 Corinthians 3. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13. Why don't I write it up here and get it right? Verses 3 and 4. He says, um, Since you are seeking approval of the Christ who is speaking in me, who to you was not weak, but is powerful in you. See the act, the contrast between weakness and power, and and empower the power of the present. And then he adds, verse 4, For he was crucified from weakness but he lives by the power of God. And see, that's exactly the thrust of Romans 1, 3, and 4. The weakness of the flesh contrasted with the present power of the Spirit. So, um, and, and we could, in stressing the... Um, the juridical aspect that is involved, we could even say, to make a point, that the resurrection is Christ's adoption as Son of God. That could be misleading, so I think we ought to qualify immediately. I'm just trying to, from the from the judicial aspect, to bring in the notion of adoption. It's Christ's readoption in his messianic identity. It, it, it it confirms in and in, in heightens that adoption. And at any rate, I hope you can see then how close we are to the thought of Hebrews 1.4 here. How uh, the inheritance of a better name that dates from the exaltation, the inheritance of that better name uh, is son. Is not that he was not son before, but that he is now son uh, culminatingly and climactically. yes. No, I don't think you want to... Uh, you, you are thrust uh, eventually against, up against the mystery of the, of the two-natured, the hypostatic union. Um, I think that you don't want... It would be wrong to, uh, to press the, um, that, the, that the change, the dynamic here, um, has anything other to do than what is taking place for Christ in terms of his genuine humanity. But it is the person... It is the, the, that person in his theanthropic constitution who does experience this. I think it would be confusing to talk about uh, the, the change experiences in terms of his genuine humanity. But it's, it, it's, it's not just an isolated humanity. It, it's, it's the person. Yes, I think you can see the states lying in back here. But you see, I think uh, particularly uh, it, it focuses on this on on the contrast between flesh and spirit here. Charles Hodge, for instance, in his commentary argues that, and and B.B. Warfield, following him in a long article, argued this means human nature, this means divine nature. And so that the verse then is seen as having its primary significance to teach, as Warfield says, the two-natured person of Christ. I would say that is... uh, that you, are, you ought not to understand flesh and spirit that way, that it has the same force that it does elsewhere in Paul, between um, uh, the, as you'll say, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh in chapter 3, coming into the, it's, it's parallel to the distinction between Paul uh, dynamizes or eschatologizes this contrast so that Sark stands for the old age and spirit in the sense of Holy Spirit for the new age. But, uh, but, but certainly the, the, two, the two natures is, are, is, is lying in back of this statement. It's not a matter of uh, setting those in opposition. Yes. The, uh, I'll just... Um, if you had... For what I'd say further here, if you... I don't have the pages right at hand, but if, if you look in, in resurrection and redemption, I've tried to address those issues more carefully than I'm doing here. Right. That's the final question. Yes, I think so. Uh, and and I and I and I hope that it, if you know I've been laying a lot of stuff on you. If you go back and look at the handling of Hebrews one, I think uh, it it it, um, it it stands by itself within the um, within the framework of the document, the book of Hebrews. And certainly, I think the handling of Romans one four stands within within a Pauline context. But again, you know, just the way you put your question, you know, ultimately in, in dealing with the scriptures. Uh, you're, you're only interested in passages as they relate to one another. Um, you know, it, 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 it's the, uh, the, the, the old hermeneutical issue of not reading what one passage teaches into another, and yet, at the same time, you know, in classic, uh, the classic dispensational era, era, to put it on a large scale, of trying to understand the Old Testament without the New Testament. That would be very wrong-headed. Uh, you are obligated, um, in, in, in view of, of the unity of the Scriptures, always to look, um, to, to, to see passages in relationship to each other. Um, look very quickly at Acts 2.36. This would be the, the fourth point here. I'll do a little, I'll do a little more here than, than comment. The, what Peter says, having just referred verse 34 and 35 to guess what? Psalm 110. Uh, So you see that brings us into the whole circle of concern that we get into the book of Hebrews uh, referring it to the exaltation, applying to the exaltation. Then he draws this. This is the, 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 the bottom line. Let all the house of Israel know for sure, certainty, certainly, that this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him both kuriôn kai Christon. And, um, you see, the thought here is not that Jesus was not Lord and Christ before the exaltation. Uh, the Lucan, I mean, just stick, sticking within a Lucan context, you can see... Um, the, um, that made very clear uh, throughout uh, the gospel. But the, whole, the point you see here is that Jesus has been made, can be said to be made Lord in Christ because of the new, final, and exalted phase of Messiahship and Lordship that he has brought into at the uh, point of his exaltation, so that in contrast, you see, it can be said that he, uh, um, the, the 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 language is 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 expressed absolutely in order to to make a comparative point. But you can talk about this um, as being the most primitive Christian confession, or whatever, and and therefore, uh, some have wanted to argue, that originally. Uh, the, the earliest Christian confession was uh, adoptionistic. That Jesus is not the Christ, is not Lord until his exaltation. Uh, but what has happened there is that a half-truth has been picked up on in an in, in accident in a way that gets into a very serious error. So, see, what we're dealing with here on a larger scale can be put this way, that you know, when, when is Jesus? when does Jesus become the messianic son? is it at his birth, is it at his baptism, is it at his exaltation? Well, the answer to that question is all of the above, uh, with the heightening or staging principle that's involved. He is truly the Christ, he is truly the Messianic incarnate Son at birth, that, is, that, that is, is heightened in an adoptionistic uh, uh, framework at his baptism, and then that receives its final or ultimate heightening at his exaltation. And as that exaltation, you see from the point of view of the New Testament, has even a future dimension to it uh, at his return. Okay, um, any questions here That um, before we move on? This was kind of an excursus um, on the thought of verse 4. Now, I was going to have, make another point, but I think for the sake of time, um, we won't move on to 2, which was basically to say um, that the contrast between Christ and the angels that structures chapter 1 Uh, is in some respects an ontological contrast because the deity of the sun does come out, but it's also a redemptive historical contrast. A contrast then uh, as the angels stand for the old order, the provisional order, and as Christ climactically in his exaltation brings in a new order. So the contrast is is both ontological but and, and redemptive historical, yes. Well, I, I think, try this, uh, to put it another way. He is saying uh, that he does, he is, who he is now as son is, uh, dates from the exaltation, and he did not become who he is as son now until the exaltation. I think that would be a fair way of stating it. See, he became better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name and then as he was begotten in this event, which, see, expresses a paternity idea. Yes, it's not just our understanding. it, it, it Something was... See, remember how I st- started uh, in, in our Christological dis- discussion, we, something happened to Christ. Something was really happening to him. And uh, where I think especially Reformed dogmatics has captured this better perhaps than other traditions, what we're talking about here is the attainment of a glorified human nature which Christ did not have before uh, the exaltation. And that's a glorified nature that he comes into possession of in his exaltation, but not just for himself, but that he might share it, which is uh, what, what uh, we can go on to see now in, in, in a couple of other passages. Yeah, it. I, I, so far as a, a good question, and, and as far as I can see, uh, the New Testament does not make a significant Christological capital out of that. Uh, the way I've thought of putting it sometimes is that there's a certain, the 40, we we're talking about 40 days. And that 40 days is, 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 is a kind of a, no, it's a redemptive historical anomaly. And, and I say anomaly in the sense that he has entered into uh, his state of exaltation. But he is temporarily delayed in going to the place of exaltation. That is, the, the transformation. See, it's a matter of life, death, and life. The transformation takes place in the resurrection. But the resurrection carries through to the right hand of God. So the forty days is, is a sort of in-between period. No, I, I, yeah, I, I would. Uh, <laughs> Um, I would want to be more careful there simply because I just don't have any New Testament evidence other than what is 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight talking about. That has really kept exegetes well-occupied. And, uh, you know, it, it talks about at the end, uh, when all things will have been put in subjection, then he hands over everything to the Father, um, and just what are the implications of that. And uh, I won't try to get into that here. But uh, uh, well, I think I, um, <laughs> it's funny how things happen. As I was expressing myself, which was somewhat extemporaneously, um, I, w- I was wondering if I should have said it just that way, and now now you're teaching me that I shouldn't have. I think it, it's, just, it's just that I, I, there's a future dimension to that. There's an already and a not yet the exaltation, but that that would involve some further change. I think the uni- uh, the um, the New Testament would be uh, pretty decisively against that. At least not of the order. But the
1: change that's, that's right. Ridiculous.
0: Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I think see that's what Paul is wanting to get at in Philippians two six, probably more clearly than any other passage. That uh, the one being in the form of God took. The you know, uh, human form, fashion, in, in, in the form of a servant, and it's particularly that 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 uh, the humiliation of of the servanthood that you know carries him into death. And in the categories that the Westminster Shorter Catechism uses to develop, you know, what does the Christ state of humiliation consist in? Uh, I think that's very very helpful. Just the fact of his being born, the catechism begins. And being, better not try to quote it right off the top of my head right now. But um, being made subject, all the conditions of this life. Um, yeah. Well, see, I think it, it's. I think what the New Testament focuses on is essentially what you and I will experience in the resurrection of the body. Uh, and and to put it in more in, in more negative terms, what he had before in his, his theanthropic person was a, um, a, a, a human nature essentially qualified by death. And uh, as that is the result, the consequences of sin and all of the futility and corruption that sin has brought. That, what he now enjoys and what we will, uh, as, as our first fruits, is, is a glorified humanity from which, all the effects of sin have been removed, and will eventually be in a in a context of, of a new creation, a, a, a creation order, a new heavens and new earth in which all of the effects of sin are removed. You, you, you know, you're you're uh, now you're, you're you're skating on or whatever the bright metaphor is. here, You know, very deep theological waters. The um, it's just an awesome thing that the eternal Son of God, true God, becomes true man and remains that forever. And, um, yeah, see, from, see I see the direction of your question, and yet it seems to me that what the New Testament teaches is that what has taken place just in what we're considering in, 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 his, in, his, in his being exalted that now he uh, it would be wrong to think of him as somehow being humiliated, somehow continuing in a state of humiliation, because he has, he has brought humanity to such an exaltedness. And, and uh, I just think, you know, as you're quoting John 17, 5, uh, the, the way Professor, you know, I heard it from Professor Murray the first time in, in dealing with... Um, um, Matters related to what we were at here, that, that what Jesus is praying for uh, is, is that's basically a prayer for exaltation, that the divine glory will be communicated in a, to his, his human nature. That is, that, uh, that, that the glory that he had with the Father before the foundation of the world is, is a glory now that he will share in, in the fullness of his, of his theanthropic person so that it's in in effect a prayer for exaltation see not that anything can be added to his to his deity but it's his humanity which is transformed okay um we have next week at our disposal um let's see here I think, um, let me uh, skip over several passages. Maybe, I, uh, here's, here's our structure, because I realize you don't have very much in the outline sheet. Uh, the relationship between sonship and high priesthood, our whole discussion in these two hours has been on 1, 3, and 4, and what that triggered. Um, we could see the same connection in the passage two, ten through 17. Two, ten through 17. Um, in the passage 3, 1 through 6, 4, 4 through 14, um, and then 5 would be 5, 5 through 10. And actually, it seems like we're skipping over a lot, but this really, this, these, this, these passages would be addressed very quickly. Um. 2.10 through 17 would take us a little more time. Um, but in the sixth place, 7.3. Let's, um, let's give our attention there because um, of the exegetical questions that can come up here and, and we really need to address um, uh, there, uh, particularly as it brings in the figure of Melchizedek. The statement in seven three that um, particularly the expression "made like to the Son of God," made like the Son of God. Now, just to uh, to orient ourselves uh, in the immediately preceding context, at five six. The writer introduces for the first time the thought that Christ is a priest for ever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What we have there is a direct quote from the second half of Psalm one ten four, Septuagint one oh nine four, uh, and cited there. To, give the express, the, uh, to express the significance of the exaltation for Christ's priesthood. The same thought expressed in 5.6 uh, is expressed in verse 10 again, and then again uh, at the end of chapter 6 in verse 20. Now we can say then that the reference in 6.20, where Christ as forerunner, Jesus as forerunner has entered on uh, entered in on our behalf into the beyond the veil of the heavenly sanctuary having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek Now that uh, provides that reference at the end of verse uh, end of chapter 6 that provides a transition uh, into chapter 7 it's, it's, you can look at it pretty much as, as the base or the trigger for what gets said in chapter 7. Uh, chapter 7 breaks down into two main sections. 7, 1 through 10 uh, develops the reference to Melchizedek, the significance of his person and work, the activity of uh, person and activity of Melchizedek, as that, of course, bears on the work of Christ. Uh, What we have then in the latter part of chapter 7, 7.11 through 28, is the first, uh, at least the first extended treatment or statement of the superiority of the priesthood of Christ in comparison to the Levitical priesthood um, as Christ's priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. So 7.11 through 28... Uh, is essentially the superiority of priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek to the priesthood according to the order of Aaron. Now, uh, narrowing things then to verses 1 through 3. 7, 1 through 3, is a rather full description of the person of Melchizedek. Um. And again, you can have fun uh, if you get a kick out of this sort of thing analyzing um, the syntax here. What we really have is one long sentence which if we uh, um, saw it at the highest level, um, the basic thought is this Melchizedek remains a priest forever. Everything in between here is qualification on this Melchizedek. A long series of predicates attached to the subject. Now, these verses, as you're aware, uh, probably to some degree, raise a number of interesting and difficult questions, and we're not going to try to answer them all here, Uh, the guideline that I think we have to follow, contrary to many interpreters, at least older interpreters, uh, the guideline to sound exegesis here is that the author is not involved in some kind of esoteric speculation. Uh, what we have here is his reflection on the incident that is recorded in Genesis fourteen seventeen through 20. Now that recourse um, to that passage of scripture, of course, is interesting and uh, enough challenging enough. Well, we have reference there in, in the narrative in Genesis fourteen to this this priest king who blesses Abraham, and what the writer does is reflect. You see, though, it's not as if he's um, just reaching because he's brought to the Genesis passage in the light of Psalm 110.4, which talks about priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. So what we have here in, these, in, the, in the opening verses of chapter 7 is a reflection, and particularly in these verses 1 through 3, is a reflection on the Genesis narrative, Genesis 14, in the light of Psalm 110.4. Now, zeroing in on verse 3. We've just been told uh, that uh, this um, figure, um, his name can be translated uh, king of righteousness and then also uh, king of peace, or basalus salem, which is king of peace. Then, further he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days, nor end of life, made like to the Son of God. Now, this verse has given rise to the greatest speculation, and there have been um, all sorts of proposals, particularly when you go back to the patristic exegesis. Uh, Philip Hughes can give you some, uh, commentary can give you some documentation on that. But the various proposals as to Who is brought into view? Is it the Holy Spirit? Is it the Father, God the Father? Is it the pre-incarnate Christ? Is it an angel in human form? Is it some intermediate being? Whatever we're uh, going to say, though, we certainly have to proceed here on the assumption that we are not dealing with some mysterious being, or as F.F. Bruce puts it neatly uh, uh, in his commentary, uh, what is being described here is not some biological anomaly. But what we have to take into account is that what the writer is? What the writer sees in Genesis 14 is a true contemporary of Abraham, a true contemporary of Abraham, a true—maybe uh, I should add—flesh and blood contemporary. So that the point, then, the writer's point here is the typical significance of this thoroughly historical figure. The typical significance of this genuine historical figure, Melchizedek, and the typical significance that this historical figure has in his capacity as a priest and king. And, of course, whatever else the writer is saying is that Melchizedek has this, the typical, typical significance, his typical significance, in that he points to Christ. He is a type of Christ. Now, what that means, you see, in other words, that these predicates in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, they apply to him, and to him as a person, to be sure. But they apply to him in terms of his office, his official significance. As he is an office bearer, that is, as he is a priest hyphen king, as he is a priest and king, he is without parents, etc. It's not that as a person he did not have genuine human parents but it's in with respect uh, to his office-bearing identity, as he uh, is priest and king, that he is without parents. Now, yeah, uh, I, uh, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. We're going to get belled here in a second. Now, see, from the larger, po- larger context, um, we can see what this typical point is, or the typology is especially as it bears on Christ and his priesthood. The larger context, uh, we find a contrast formed with the Levitical priesthood. Now, what is it that's so important in Levitical priesthood? Well, there, genealogy is everything. Proper parentage is what counts. Uh, What the writer wants to bring out, bring to our attention, uh, as he looks at the Old Testament materials, is that uh, what the the, uh, the Levitical priesthood is all about is being priest for a limited time in a line of succession. In the Levitical priesthood, we're saying it's a matter of being a priest for a limited time in a line of succession established, as that succession is established and regulated by the Mosaic law. That is what is essential, determinative. If nothing else, look at Leviticus 21, 14, and um, if you're only going to look up one verse, look up Nehemiah 7, seven sixty-four. Where the point is made that when, the, when they're making an effort to reconstitute the priesthood after the return from exile, couldn't find the genealogical records. You're out of luck. You can't be priest. Um, so uh, let, let me just uh, maybe I'll draw the line here. When you look at verse six in Hebrew seven, uh, verse six. For the one who is not descended or does not count his genealogy from them, that is, from the Levitical priests that are mentioned in verse 5, received tithes from Abraham and blessed uh, the one, that is, Abraham, who had the promises. So, particularly if you have a Greek text in front of you, you see, um, uh, f- the emphasis there is on homea gene e genealoguminos, Uh That confirms, you see, that, that family pedigree uh, and ordered succession is the central point of the predicates in verse 3. This is what, without father, without mother, without genealogy um, is wanting to bring out that. He lacks what was necessary for the Levitical priesthood. And in a sense, uh, you can see um, that here, logatos sums up everything.